0: And I hope you will follow along in your Bible or, or see your bulletin insert for our passage of Scripture. We do want to use this as a unison reading. I know there are a lot of names in there, just fly on through them with confidence. I'm sure you can do it. Let's read the Word of God together, beginning in verse 6. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David That Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abithar the priest, Bring me but here. Then said during the past 100 years. And the study was talking about how 22 of the largest, of the 57 largest cities in England and Wales have more than doubled their employment during the past century. And I don't know about you, but when I read a statistic like that, my mind suddenly asks the question, why? Why is that true? Why that particular 22 cities? What's the difference between them and the other 35? Did they have some sort of of background of industrial capacity that made the difference? Or perhaps they were more flexible, attitudinally speaking. I mean, after all, a lot of changes have taken place during the last century. Just think about it. Electricity, the telephone. First, widespread automobile travel and then air travel, computers, the internet. We, we could go on and on. Does flexibility of those living in these cities have anything to do with it? Well, this is what the study determined. And I quote, The best performing cities in this century typically began the last century with a higher base of knowledge-rich and professional jobs and responded to the evolving global landscape through innovation and adaptation. Over time, their economies transformed to favor knowledge-intensive industries, enabling them to offset job losses in declining fields and build competitive and dynamic labor markets. Now maybe that just sounds like a bunch of economic jargon to you, but even if it does, did you notice one word that was mentioned twice in that quotation? That word is knowledge. Knowledge turned out to be the key with these cities that outperformed the other cities, at least when it comes to to employment, and the reason we're talking about that is because knowledge is a key theme uh, to this passage that we have before us this morning. We only see the actual word "to know" one time in verse nine, but this theme of knowledge sort of permeates this text from the beginning where Saul is told that David happened to be in this fortified city, to almost the end of our passage, where Saul is told that David has escaped. Now, in last week's sermon, if, if you weren't here, we saw a great contrast between Saul and David. Just like we saw a contrast between Goliath. And David, Saul and Goliath had a particular type of vision, what we called secular vision, whereas David had spiritual vision because his vision, what he could see, was theologically rooted. And today we see another contrast in this passage between Saul and David. And it has to do with who knows what about God's will. If you notice verse 7, you can see what Saul thinks he knows. Now he's told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. you hear Saul's confidence there? He's very sure that he knows exactly what God is doing. God has given David into my hand. This is the same kind of presumption of knowledge that we can see in other places in the Old Testament, sometimes from pagan people, sometimes from supposedly believers. We'll mention just one well-known example in the Old Testament that's found... In the book of Daniel, the third chapter, with that wonderful story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you had not read that story lately, or you've never read it at all, they were the three Hebrew young men who who decided not to do as the king had commanded everyone in the kingdom to do. King Nebuchadnezzar had erected a, a humongous gold image. And at certain music, when it was played, everyone in the kingdom was to bow down and worship that golden image. And these three Hebrew young men said, we're not going to do it. You know, we don't worship anyone but the living God. And when Nebuchadnezzar found out that they were refusing to bow down and worship, it made him furious. And he had them brought before him. And he said, If you're ready to fall down and worship the image which I have set up well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? We can clearly hear what Nebuchadnezzar thinks he believes to be true, that no one can be saved from that furnace. And yet just a few verses later, we read where God delivers those three Hebrew men. And Nebuchadnezzar is almost like he's in a revival. He starts talking about the living God. It's the same kind of presumption that we can see over in the New Testament coming from the lips of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine when he's examining Jesus. They have this brief conversation that John records for us in his gospel in the 19th chapter as Pilate asks Jesus, where are you from? And we're told that Jesus gave him no answer. And this is when Pilate said, do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus corrects his presumption when Jesus says, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. You see, as we're faced with this example of Saul in our text, Saul, who is the anointed one of God, who was chosen to lead God's people, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we anything like him? Do we think we know exactly what God is going to do? It's not a question of whether we can know God's will or not. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I believe the Bible teaches that we can know God's will. And we can know God's will, His general will for us, which is to be conformed more and more to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, and we can know His particular will at times in our lives. What church we're to join, for example? What our vocation might be? Where we're to go to school? What person are we to marry? Those kinds of questions. I believe God gives us guidance and leadership on those. The point I'm trying to make that I believe is in this text is that we can't simply presume to know God's will just at any time based on circumstances because of our own human wisdom circumstances may have and probably do have something to do with God's will. In fact, I preached a sermon where that was one of the four points, that circumstances can help you with God's will, just like Christian counsel can, just like the Word of God can, just like time and prayer and meditation with God. All of those things help us to know the will of God, but we simply cannot presume to know His will at times by our own wisdom, because His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, as Scripture teaches. How many times did the disciples think that they knew exactly what Jesus wanted and intended only to find out how wrong they were? We cannot presume to know God's will depending upon our own Saul thought he had David trapped, and not just trapped, but he thought that God had given David into his hands, and he found out how wrong he was. Now notice the difference between David and Saul. Like Saul, in this passage, David also knows some things. He has some knowledge about certain things, like the fact that Saul is plotting against him. But this doesn't lead him to assume that he understands everything. Instead, his knowledge leads him to seek God's wisdom. We see that in verse 9 and following. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to the priest, Bring the ephod here. And we can see in the following verses how David begins to ask specific questions of God in prayer. By casting lots. Now we don't understand everything there is to know about casting lots. We read about that a lot in the earlier uh, centuries of the Old Testament. We know that the priest had a particular place on his garment where that was carried. Those lots were carried. And that was the way that they were able to come to determination of what God's will was for them. This was something that God established Himself in the law. And so David asked specific questions. Will Saul and the army come to the city? And if so, will the people of this city surrender me and, and my men? You see, David and his men had helped this city, Kei. The Philistines had, had warred against them. And David and his men heard about it. They went over there and saved the day. And so this city sort of owed them some allegiance, and yet David wanted to make sure that he didn't put his trust in the wrong place. And so we can see in this passage that David, as a leader, is not just a man of quick action. You know, a lot of people talk about how good leaders are when they can make snap decisions. David is a man rather of informed. He wants to know from God just what he and his men should do. He understands that his proper attitude before God is one of need, And that God is his source of strength. That God is his source of, of hope and of life as David makes clear in the Psalms that he's written for us in God's Word. That we can read over and over again. Think of Psalm 34 where David writes, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is one of the Psalms, or at least it says in in Scripture that this was written in a time when David was having to hide from King Saul. And Saul was chasing him all over the countryside and all through the wilderness. And this is when this particular Psalm, Psalm 34 was and David says in that psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him from the law. The Lord redeems the life of His servants and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Now, if God is your refuge, as David refers to Him in that psalm, then He's the source of everything you need. You see the difference between Saul and David? Saul talks a good game of religion. Saul uses the word God. He uses it in his daily conversation. But he doesn't live a relationship with the living God. David, on the other hand, speaks of a relationship and we can see the truth of this close relationship that he has with God over and over again. A relationship that seeks God's will. And once that will is known, he does the, the, the best of his ability to accomplish that will. I believe that's why Scripture refers to it, as a man after God's own heart. But let's return to our same question. We've just described David as one who is close with God and seeks to communicate with Him. Does this attitude or lifestyle describe you? Are you sensitive to God's guidance and His Word? Or are you more like Saul, making up your mind on what you're going to do before you pray about it? Or if you even pray. You see, God's will is so important because if we know His will and accomplish His will, then it brings Him glory. I think this is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before others that they may see your what? Good works. And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. But not only that, as we follow God's will for our lives, God blesses obedience. Deuteronomy 28 teaches us this. And we see it in God's Word over and over again, whether He blesses us in this life or the next. In Psalm 34, we see the same thing, where David tells us that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are toward their cry. Whereas, he says, the face of the Lord is against evildoers. David can write this because he's seen that played out in people's lives over and over again. And he's seen that same thing play out in his own life. Look near the end of verse 13 for how this truth is displayed in David's life in this particular circumstance. We read Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. We have to make sure we understand what our writer is telling us here. David escapes not because he has better intel than Saul. David escapes not because he's smarter or more clever than Saul or has a a better military mind. It's that God is intervening. It's that God has delivered It's that God did not give him into his hand. In his commentary, Walter Brueggemann, who's a great Old Testament scholar, says, God has rejected Saul as king. Saul can try as he might, but the various episodes in this conflict between David and Saul simply display this overriding reality of God who is in control regardless of what they do or choose not to do, Saul nor David can get around God's sovereignty. And that's true for you and me as well. We worship and serve a sovereign God. And we always have to remember that. You see, this is what Saul should have known as the Lord's first anointing that it's futile to work against the will of God. Saul knows that David has been anointed as the next king of Israel. He knows that is God's will, and yet he works against that will purportedly so that his own son Jonathan will sit on his throne one day. But you see, it's just as simple as Saul wanting what Saul wants instead of what God wants. How often are you and I just like that? How often do we waste time and effort and resources working against the will of God? This is what we see happening with the Jewish religious leaders in, in Jesus' day and time. These people who were supposedly close to God. These people who supposedly had a, had a great knowledge of of God's Word. And yet they wanted to go their own way instead of opening up their hearts to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. John describes it for us in his seventh chapter when he says Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. But shortly after that, we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem and was teaching in the temple and we're told they sought to arrest Him, but no one laid hands on Him because His hour had not yet come. You see, they were working against the will of God. And as all of their time and effort, their resources was wasted, His time had not yet come. You see, David in our text, being sought but never captured, prefigures Jesus Christ who had much that same type of life as we've seen in this David material before. David points us toward the Lord Jesus. David has nowhere to stay. He's being chased all over the wilderness. And one night he's in this cave and the next night he stays in this cave and I'm sure he spent nights out under the stars. He's homeless, in other words. You remember what Jesus says about himself in Matthew 8, 20? Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere, nowhere to lay his head. Now, we too are aliens and exiles on this earth. But that's for another day and another sermon. The point is we all need guidance from God. We need to know and follow the will of God. And in Israel's history, we can see the various ways down through the centuries that they determined God's will. We see God giving the law to the people of Israel during the time of Moses. And we see them understanding how they were to live because of that law. And then God started to send prophets. And they had prophets and they knew how to live because of the prophets. And after... Uh, much of what the prophets had said was, was collected in a written form, say, after the time of the Babylonian exile, the Jews turned more and more to the written word. And it wasn't just the law, but it was the law and the prophets and the writings. And so the Jews became known as this people of the book. And we can see how great the influence that book, what we refer to as the Old Testament, was on Jewish life because when we open up the New Testament that we so love, we can see 295 explicit references to the Old Testament. To put that another way, almost 5% of the New Testament is actually Old Testament. But they couldn't emphasize just the Old Testament because as the writer of Hebrews put it, in many and various ways, God spoke of old old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by the Son. So this is how we can know to live. We have the gift of of God's Word and contained within that Word, we have the gift of the Gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is how God speaks to you and me. This is how He informs us about how we are to live. This is how He gives us His will, all aided by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may be sitting there and listening to all of this and thinking, well, well, that's one thing, but I read the Word of God. I read it from time to time and I'm not able to get anything out of it. I read it when I have a, a great decision coming up and I pray, but I don't seem to, to know what God really wants me to do. If that's happening to you, then you turn to James, the first chapter. New Testament letter to James. James 1, the fifth verse. And this is what you'll see. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. That's a promise from God's Word to you and me that when we don't know which way we're to go, we are to ask God for business. And you've got to remember, James is speaking from an Old Testament perspective. And in Old Testament speak, wisdom is knowledge. You remember how we began this sermon talking about knowledge? We're ending this sermon talking about knowledge. Knowledge that deepens one's relationship with God and makes clear the path to follow. That's not only pleasing to God, the path of wisdom that the book of Proverbs, for example, talks about over and over again. Not only is that way of life pleasing to God, but it brings life to the believer. It brings success. It brings shalom. That peace that the Old Testament speaks about that is all of the areas of life combined into one. That's what we have when we have God's wisdom. A wisdom that He promises to give to you and me when we ask. The teaching of Scripture assumes that you and I can know God's will and the Holy Spirit will give us the power and the guidance we need to accomplish God's will for His glory and our good. David knew this. And David lived. God's will for much of his life, not all of it. We'll talk about some of those times later on in this series when he didn't live God's will. He's a sinner like you and me. But most of the time, when he knew God's will, he brought it to fruition. He accomplished it with the power of God that's at work in his life. And as contrast, we can see that Saul did not. And so we have to ask ourselves the question which lifestyle describes us, David or Saul? Let's pray together.